Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, good evening. How are y'all doing today? My name is Andrew Russell, and I usually lead the singing, and so thank you, Cheryl, the band, and uh, Kyle, and Nikki, and... Uh, Susie, Lord Jesus, help me. Mrs. Miss Park, thank you all so much. Let's pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, we come before you, O God, in the mighty name of Jesus. Father, we know that you are all-powerful and all-wise. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would show us your wisdom and your power tonight, that you would speak through your word a message of love that would bring new life. In Jesus' name, amen. So many of you don't know this, but I used to work at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. How many of you have ever rented a car from Enterprise Rent-A-Car? All right, so most of you. So at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, we were taught how to be great managers and how to satisfy the most hostile customers. So I remember uh, during my training, standing in awe of one of my managers who could diffuse any tense and difficult situation. So one customer rented a car from a manager trainee that was, that was smoked out. I mean, it was holes and, and smoke was all over the upholstery. Uh, and this person did not smoke. And so they came into the business and they were angry and they wanted some answers. So my, my manager calmly told the customer that, that everything is going to be all right. And, and, and she also uh, uh, gave this customer a free rental and on top of that, a free upgrade. So I, I, I thought that, you know, I'd put these skills into practice when I would, when I would face a disgruntled customer. And my time came. So one day I, I answered the phone and on the other line was a customer whose car had broken down in the middle of the highway. They, they were somewhere in the remotest part of Georgia uh, and they were stuck because the service light came on and the car just wouldn't operate. Now the car had gas and so something else had gone wrong. And this customer was upset. This customer uh, said, what are we prepared to do to help him? And so I, I remembered my training 
And, and my wise, the wise example of my manager who could diffuse any situation. And I said these words. I, says, I said, sir, I, I'm sorry that your car broke down. Um, would you like 10% off your next rental? <laughs> now, what proceeded to come out of this man's mouth, I had never heard before. I, I, I didn't even know you could make triple compound cuss words with an emphasis on the first syllable. I, I felt like I was at a cussing university being taught by a PhD of a well-tenured professor of cussing. My brothers and sisters, I was being schooled. Now, tonight's topic uh, uh, has caused many people to react like this man. This topic is the cause of, of many people either leaving the church, switching churches, or staying in church. Today's topic strikes at the heart of our humanity and how we view the world. So, what is the topic? Well, it's the doctrines of grace, or as they are affectionately called or notoriously called, tulip, or i.e., in other words, the five points of Calvinism. Now, I'm not going to solely focus on the five points of Calvinism, but I'll, I'll mention them briefly as we work through the text. So here's the main point of the sermon. If you fall asleep, this, this is what you need to get. This is the thesis statement. God saves people based on his sovereign choice, and he does it on the basis of love and mercy, and not on our potential or our performance. I'll say it again. He saves, God saves people based on his sovereign choice, which is based on love and mercy and not of ourselves or our own potential or our own performance. So when I was a student at Covenant College, uh, my hall had the opportunity to name itself. So before we named the hall, it was just unknown. So you look in the phone book and it was just unknown. And so uh, we, we had the opportunity, I think this hall exists today, even if you go to Covenant College, this hall still exists today. We actually named a hall. Now, we decided on three names. The first name was Birdland, which apparently was, is a famous jazz lounge. I've never really heard about it. And then the, the second name, which is the name that I chose, it's, it's, the name was Seneca. And Seneca is a Native American term meaning people of the standing rock. I mean, it was firm, right? I mean, wouldn't you, Seneca, wouldn't you want to live in a place called Seneca? And, and, and then, of course, the, the, the third one uh, was the five points. Now, I automatically rejected this hall being named the four, five points because I knew that when we t- told people that we live on the five points, people would automatically think about the five points of Calvinism. What it was supposed to refer to the 19th century Manhattan community that inspired the movie Gangs of New York. Raise your hand if you've seen Gangs of New York. Okay. And so even as a college student, I I understood the negative perception that people had about the five points of Calvinism. So, So what's the big deal about? Why do people get so worked up about the doctrines of grace? Well, I believe the issue is a matter of choice. Does God choose people to be saved or... Are we responsible for our salvation? 
Now, before we get into Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we need to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, which says, and I'll quote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. Can someone say love? Say love. Love. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, a, a loving God decided before the foundations of the world, before the creation of all things, that he would predestine a multitude of people for salvation. This was not based on foreknowledge, which is God looking into the future to see who would accept Jesus Christ. No, on the contrary, it was based on his own sovereign will, as Paul says, to, for the praise of his glory. Now, the reformers, they call this act of God unconditional election, or as I would like to call sovereign election. This is the you in the tulip. Now, what this means is the act of election, the act of election is referred in scripture to predestination, which literally means to decide beforehand or to predetermine. It does not mean fatalism, which teaches that we are robots and mainly and merely puppets. Predestination refers to God's plan of salvation. We are free moral agents, but our freedom has been corrupted by sin. Now, before, before you get up in arms, remember that predestination is not just a New Testament concept. It's actually an Old Testament concept. We read it in our Old Testament reading at the beginning of service in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. God describes his choice of Israel over all the nations of the world. God did not choose Israel because of their potential or or because that they were a great nation. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says that you were the fewest of people, but he chose them because he loved them. He, He brought the children of Israel into a covenant relationship with himself through his covenant with Abraham In Genesis 12, and God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his people. And so God's electing love has its root in the nation of Israel. The scandal of the gospel is this, that Gentiles, in other words, non-Jews, receive the same promise as Israelites. Paul says that if you are in Christ, then you are of Abraham's seed and heir to the eternal life in Galatians 3 and 29. So union with Christ, being in Christ, this is the mystery of the gospel, that God sends his only son to make Jews and Gentiles both heirs through his death and resurrection. So let's look at the passage at hand. If you have your, if you have your, uh, 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 your bulletin, let's look at it. Now, Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, describe what reformers, reformers would call total depravity or radical, or as I would like to say, radical corruption. So total depravity, it's the T in the tulip. 
It refers to our nature as being totally affected by sin, which was passed down to every human being, starting with the first man, Adam, who disobeyed God's command in the, in the Garden of Eden, and the effect was spiritual death to all men and women. And this, and this death was regarding our inability to choose God. We are more worse than what we think, but we are not as bad as we can be. That's, that's what total depravity is referring to. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 talks about how we are dead in trespasses and sin and following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, and are by nature children of wrath. And so we, we are not neutral towards God. Because uh, sin is rebellion against God himself. In Romans 5.10, it speaks of this. The corruption of sin is the inability to be neutral. Sin not only makes us atheists, but it makes us God-haters. Sin is actually enmity against God. And this enmity, Romans 8.7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. You see, sin is stubborn in its rebellion. When we operate in the flesh, we, we, we don't want anything to do with God. Uh, a God to the one who was born in sin is a tyrant. He's unfair. And so I, I think a lot of times when we think of, of sin, we think of, of, of you know, I, I, when we think about salvation, you say, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to choose Christ uh, or I, ch- I can choose I, I, or not choose Christ. The, the, we need to see the reality that sin is not just a neutral thing. We're actually walking in a contrary way to God. Sin is like, and I'll, I'll give you some word pictures. Sin is like drowning in the ocean in the midst of a hurricane in shark-infested waters. It's, it's, it's insidious. It's active. Sin, sin is like living in a house that is infected with black mold. It's pervasive. Sin is not neutral. Sin, sin is like fighting in World War II and being on the side of Hitler. Paul describes us as literally walking in the ways of darkness, enslaved by Satan, the world, and our own lusts. He, he says it right there in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And this, this, my brothers and sisters, is the horror of our condition. We don't want a sovereign God to rule over us, let alone save us. This is why salvation must be outside of us. It must come from another source. It can't come from ourselves or else we would choose to walk away from it. And that's why we need God's grace. Let me ask you a question. Do you know why you have no power to overcome sin in your life? You know, many of us struggle with sin. And, 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 and when you feel powerless. And so my question to you is, do you know why you don't have the power? Do you know why sin is just always wrecking your life? Well, I think Paul gives us an answer. Paul says, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it, it's because you don't know where you're seated. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 6 through 7. Uh, verse 6, it says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are no longer dead, 
but alive. The old things that have kept you down have passed away and the presence of remaining sin is passing away. You see, your, your status has changed. You are seated in the throne room of God above all rule and above all authority and above all powers. You no longer need to live in despair because you are seated in the heavenly places. No, no sin has ultimate power over you. You have divine authority and power over it. You might struggle, but your struggle is not the end of you, and it will not win because you are seated in the heavenly places next to Jesus Christ who has defeated death. You are of value because Christ has given you uh, and has made you royal. He has given you royalty. He has seated you on the heavenly realms. I mean, uh, visitors can't park in your parking zone. Because they'll get ticketed and told, you, you have a new home, you have a new address, you got a new parking zone. And I would like to think the best parking zone is zone six, amen? Yeah. Hey, if, if you're in zone six, say amen. You see, you, 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 you have direct access to God. You, you can keep your car parked in his presence all day. No one can tow your car or fine you for staying too long because you have a new status. You are seated in the heavenly places with the king of kings and the lord of lords. And so, and so next time you have a problem with sin or a, a, a problem with pain or, or the struggle that you deal with, if you are in Christ, you need to remind yourself of your status. That God has not only saved you, but he has seated you far above all rule and authority and power. So the grace of Jesus Christ, it comes to us not by our own doing or our, our, our potential for goodness or our self-will or intellectual curiosity. The grace of God comes through Jesus Christ's work for us. And we see it in Ephesians 2, excuse me, 2 verses 8. Let's look at it. It says, this is my favorite verse, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You see, we, we have to be made alive to accept the free grace of Christ. And, and when you are made alive, you are called to faith and repentance. And repentance is turning away from sin and toward God. The reformers would, would describe this as irresistible grace, or, or as I would like to call it, effectual grace. This is the eye in the tulip. It, what this means is God's will cannot be undone or thwarted by God's people. Because when God makes us alive, he makes us alive in Christ. It is our union with Christ that makes the grace of God effectual. John six thirty seven says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and I will never cast it out. John ten twenty seven says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. You see, God does not leave his elect in despair of death. He calls them out of death and he speaks life to them. He, he prophesies over the dead, dry bones. When, when everyone around them is asking, how in the world can these bones live? Can, can, can God make a way out of nowhere? 
Is God God enough to raise dead men and women to life and make them whole? Can God work a miracle? I would say yes. Yes, God can. And yes, God will. You see, God, God looks over the nations of the world and he sees his elect with no hope. He sees them powerless and, and helpless. He, he sees the walls closing in on them. And he sends his only begotten son into enemy territory to speak over them with the same voice that created the heavens and the earth. And, and he says to, his, to the angels of heaven, he, he says to them, open the graves. Bring me the coffins. Take me to the funeral so that I can speak life and so that I can put my Holy Spirit within them and so that they can breathe the air of mercy, so that they can taste the fruit of kindness, so they can drink from the fountain of grace and run on the ground of hope. If you hear these words tonight, God is calling you. God is calling you from death into life. And this is not just any life, but it's the best life that there is. God, God is loosing the chains of slavery that Satan has you bound in. God is changing your desires. He, he is shaping what you love. And he is saving you from wrath to show you his beauty. Will you believe? Will you believe by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? Will you confess your sins and be rescued today? Will you confess that you do need to be rescued? Now, you might say, hold, hold up, hold up, Andrew. Take, take a couple steps back. Didn't you just say that I can't choose God? Yes, I did. I did say that. I'm, I'm having my own, I'm, I'm trying to anticipate the question here. Then you might say, well, well, how can you believe? And the answer is only by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So you might say then, but how do I know that God has died for me? How do I know if I am the elect? This comes to the most contentious of issues. This is the, the L in TULIP. It is called what reformers would call limited atonement or definite atonement. This doctrine teaches that Jesus died to secure the salvation for his elect. Jesus did not die to make salvation possible, but definite. Romans 8, 29 through 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. So the message of salvation is shared to everyone, but only his sheep will believe. Christ's salvation secures our space in the heavenly throne room of God. Now, how many people are called? I, I don't know. But I, I do know one thing. In Revelations 5, verse 9, it says, and this is speaking of Jesus, it says, for you were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So I know that the elect of God don't look like me, 
just 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 me and me alone. I know the elect of God just don't speak English. I know the elect of God are not just men. I know the elect of God are not just Bahamians. Amen. <laughs> thank thank God that the elect is not just a Bahamian because y'all would be in trouble. There's only about five hundred thousand of us. It's not a lot. But the elect of God is from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every ethnic group, every every man and woman. It, it, it is it, it is it is, a, it is a number that is diverse. Now I'm going to read you this quote, and I'll, and I'll try to close. Louis Burkhoff he he wrote in his systematic theology. He says theology as the knowledge of God, differs in an important point from all other knowledge. Y'all listen to this. This is very important here. It says, in the study of all other sciences, man or woman places themselves above the object of his investigation and actively elicits from it knowledge by whatever may seem appropriate. So uh, when you're talking about science, you put yourself above the object of your investigation and you try to elicit from it knowledge based on whatever means that you seem that seem appropriate to you. But in theology, it's different. Men and women don't stand above, but rather under the object of their knowledge. In other words, man can know God only so far as the latter, being God, actively makes himself known. My friends, at the end of the day, God is sovereign and he chooses to do things according to his own purposes and plans. Now, I don't know why some are elect and others are not. I can only sit under the object of my knowledge who is God and thank him for revealing the mystery of the gospel that not only saves Jews, but it saves Gentiles from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. At some point in our pursuit of understanding God's ways, we have to recognize that God sees the end from the beginning. He knows more than we can ever understand, and he does everything according to his will. And he is gracious. He is gracious. He he offers treasures and, and innumerable riches to those who don't deserve it. Grace, uh, when I grew up, grew up in the church, my dad would always say, grace is, a, is an acronym for God's riches at Christ's expense. It can't be earned. Or it can't be bought. It does not depend how far you have fallen from grace or how many good acts that you have done. It is able to make you alive and unite you to the lover of your soul and seat you in a position of privilege and royalty. That's the grace of God. The grace of God is, is very rich. And I, I don't, some of you might, might have been seeing me drinking from this bottle. I, I was literally drinking from a, a five-gallon bottle of water. See, a lot of times when you drink water, you might use a cup. But I, I, got, I, I, have more, I need more than enough. And I feel like that's a picture of grace. Grace is the, the immeasurable richness of Christ. He, he gives us more than what we need. He not only saves us. See, you can save somebody that's running across the road and a car is about to hit them. And then you can walk away and be like, well, I'm glad that you're alive. But, but, but God says that's not enough. He saves us. He brings us into his family. And he seats us 
in the heavenly places. I'll close with this right here. It said, uh, imagine if you would, if you would, being a convicted criminal and you're on death row and the judge walks into your cell and throws his arms around you and says that you're free to go. Then afterwards, the, the judge closes the cell on himself and says that I will take the death penalty for you. And three, three days go by and, and, and they kill the judge and, then, and, and you wonder, how can I offer thanks? How can I repay this judge for what they have done? I've been on death row and this judge took my penalty. Then the judge knocks on your door and, and, the, and the judge calls your name, fully, li- fully alive, and the, the judge is resurrected from the dead, your conviction fully served, and, and the judge does something strange. You know, you've been, uh, during this time that you, you've been freed, you've been looking for a job, and you can't find a job. You, you, have, you have a record, and you can't find a job, but you're so thankful for this judge, and you're like, I, I, I don't know, what, what, what can I do? I, I don't have any, any, any work experience. And the judge comes, and the judge puts his robe on you. The judge invites you into the car, and the, and the judge takes you to the courtroom, first day on the job. And as your first day on the job, you, you walk into the courtroom with the judge's robes, this, this convicted felon who was on death row. And as the judge walks you into the courtroom, the judge says, all rise for the honorable, and you insert your name. That, that's what grace is. Grace is Christ taking our penalty for us. Grace is Christ inviting us into his uh, family business, which is to love on, a, 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 to love on people, to, to declare his righteousness, his, his mercy, his grace to people, and to give you a job, that, a job that's more important than anything, uh, uh, anything on Capitol Hill, no offense to those on Capitol Hill or in the White House, you'd probably be like, yeah, but... He, he, he gives us privilege, privilege that we don't deserve, and he clothes us in his righteousness. And Jesus Christ presents us to the Father, and he says, all rise. This is my child. This is my son. This is my daughter. That's, that's what grace is. So let's apply that grace to our lives. Let's, let's remember that Jesus Christ not only saves us, but he seats us in the heavenly realms, far above all power, far above all authority, far above all anything that could rule and ruin your life. Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, has seated you above it. That's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O God, that you have seated us in the heavenly places. Father, I pray that if there is one who does not quite understand, that you would let them know that you love them. Father, I pray that you would call out to them and let them know that the struggle that they're in, the struggle that they, the pain that they find themselves in, it's not final because Jesus Christ has defeated death. We have not struggled until death because we're still here. And so, Father, since we're still alive and still here, Father, remind your people that you love them, that you have seated them in the heavenly places. 
And it's all because of grace. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.